Ed, my welcome to you all today. It's good to worship with you. I want to invite you to turn to the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans, Romans chapter 1. Perhaps the most significant obstacle to preaching the gospel, whether it's preaching the gospel to your brothers and sisters in Christ in your own missional community or discipleship huddle, or whether it's preaching the gospel to an unconverted loved one, neighbor, colleague, the the most significant limiting factor is often shame. We are ashamed. We may be ashamed of ourselves, ashamed of our past, ashamed uh, of our perceived deficiencies, ashamed of our inability to explain things clearly, ashamed of our own sin. And to every believer who faces these very real fears, this real shame, Paul's just such a great friend. (laughs) Um, He says, the reason I am eager to preach, the reason I can't wait to encourage you to preach is because I'm not ashamed. And the reason I'm not ashamed isn't because, you know, like I figured out the secret of getting over myself. The the reason I'm not ashamed is because I've found that the gospel itself is the very power of God for salvation. I can't save anybody. I can't set anybody free. I can't untangle your mess. But I can tell you this. That when it came to facing my own mess, facing my own past, facing my own dysfunctions and my own sin, here's what I found. The Apostle Paul says, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. The gospel is the power of God for freedom from shame. But we might push back a little bit and say, Paul, (laughs) what if the reason I'm reluctant to preach is not only because I'm ashamed of myself. What if the reason I'm reluctant to preach is because I'm ashamed of God? I'm ashamed to even say it, but God embarrasses me. What if the gospel itself is the cause of our shame? In order to truly understand the the sweetness of the good news of the gospel, the wonder and beauty of God's mercy to sinners, there's lurking in the background this troubling doctrine. (laughs) And that would be the doctrine of the wrath of God. What do we do with the reality of an angry God who like an old neighbor of mine once complained, is ticked off about sin. The Apostle Paul does not shy away from the truth of God's wrath. Rather, he faces it head on. And so what else can we do but join him as we continue to make our way through this remarkable letter to the Romans. So rather than skip over Romans 1.18 to 32, here we go. Let's, let's give it a look. And... In order to pick up Paul's train of thought, I'm going to start reading in verse 15, and I would invite you, as an expression of honoring God's word, please stand and follow along 
as we give attention to what Paul writes. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Here's verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise, they became fools. And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. To the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, 
they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is God's true and holy and authoritative word. Let's pray. Lord, you say, it's to this one that I will look. To the one who is humble and contrite and trembles at your word. There's no way we can muster that up on our own. Humility, not not by a long shot. Contrition, not by a long shot. Trembling at your word. Lord, this is a miracle that we look to you to accomplish within us. Produce, O Lord, by your grace, for your glory, this tender-hearted disposition so that we might benefit from your word and that we might know your blessing upon us. Oh Lord, we, we long for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> Excuse me. You know, it's a common thing in families for there to be at least one weird relative. You know, a weird uncle, crazy cousin, <laughs> My sons have a weird, my weird brother-in-law. I have this out-of-control cousin. And my wife's nephews and uh, her niece, (laughs) they have me. Uh, Those weird relatives are weird because they say weird stuff, they do weird things. Because these relatives are weird, they make us feel uncomfortable. Um, They embarrass us. And so, we're ashamed. One of the reasons I believe we find ourselves less eager than Paul to preach the gospel and and, and mainly tentative and timid when it comes to explaining the way that the gospel works is because we're ashamed. More specifically, we are ashamed of God. There are things about God that make me so uneasy, I can't preach. There are things about God that are so unsettling that I can't preach the gospel. And what is it about God that we find most unsettling? What is it about God that we don't want to talk about? What is it about God that, at least in our day and age and cultural situation, is embarrassing, yet essential for the gospel to be clear, robust, complete, and true. You know where this is going. The the truth about God that makes everyone easy, uneasy, Christian or non-Christian, the truth about God without which the gospel is incomplete is the wrath of God. Now, My purpose today is to persuade you that the wrath of God is not a reason 
to be ashamed. Rather, the wrath of God is an essential manifestation of the glory of God. The wrath of God is a fundamental reason to rejoice in the grace of God. And the wrath of God is a powerful motivator to preach the gospel of God. So, here's what I want to draw your attention to. This is my outline, okay? It's the reality of God's wrath, the rightness of God's wrath, the revelation of God's wrath, and a right response to God's wrath. So, reality, rightness, revelation, right response. Great little mnemonic device. So, first of all, the reality of God's wrath. God's wrath is real. The wrath of God is real, and therefore we must take it seriously. Verse 18 starts right out, and it says, The wrath of God is revealed. Wrath is revealed. It's displayed. It is out there. Wrath is an old English word, and the old English definition of it is deep, intense anger and indignation. I guess we're going to hear a little bit from J.I. Packer this morning. He writes, The modern habit throughout the Christian church is to play the subject down. Those who still believe in the wrath of God, and not all do, say little about it. To an age which has unashamedly sold itself to the gods of greed, pride, sex, and self-will, the church mumbles on about God's kindness but says virtually nothing about his judgment. The fact is that the subject of divine wrath has become taboo in modern society, and Christians, by and large, have accepted the taboo and conditioned themselves never to raise the matter. Why is that? Why are we embarrassed when the idea of God's wrath comes up? And we're so tempted to soft pedal and hedge and <clears throat> clear our throats before we talk about it. Isn't it because on account of our uneasy suspicion that the, that the whole notion of wrath, this so-called deep anger and indignation, it's in some way or another unworthy of God. The notion of wrath in our minds, in our associations, suggests loss of self-control or the temper tantrum of a frustrated individual or, or the cruel pleasure in punishing people. I think for most of us, we think wrath, we think this is psychotic. And if the God of the Bible is like that, well, then he is a monster that I cannot accept. But when the Bible speaks of God in, in human-like terms, we call these, what's the word, anthropomorphisms, right? It, you know, it does not imply that the limitations and the imperfections which are clearly manifesting themselves in sinful creatures like us belong in the same corresponding terms as our holy creator. The Bible speaks of the love of God and... and, and God's, we never come to the conclusion, right, that, that God's love leads him to be some 
foolhardy, wide-eyed, you know, and, you know, impulsive and, and committing immoral acts in the way our experience of love often gets fleshed out. And in the same way, the wrath of God in the Bible, it, it's never erratic, it's never impulsive, it's never self-indulgent, temperamental, in the way human anger so often is. Rather, God is only angry when anger is called for. Listen to some of these texts. Exodus 15, for instance. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. Or Numbers chapter 32. The Lord's anger was kindled on that day. And he swore saying, Surely none of the men who came up out of the Egypt shall see the land. None except Caleb and Joshua, for they have wholly followed the Lord. And the Lord's anger was kindled against Israel, and he, he made them wander in the wilderness 40 years until all the generations that had done evil in the sight of the Lord was gone. Or Judges chapter 2. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and they abandoned the Lord who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. And so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. The hand of the Lord was against them for harm as the Lord had warned. And then really closer to our own context in Romans chapter 2. But because of your hard heart, your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. The wrath of God is the righteous judgment of God. And it is serious. And it is a sobering reality. Second, it's serious and sobering because God's wrath is always right. It is appropriate and necessary for God to be <laughs> ticked off about sin. God is supremely valuable and worthy above everything else. In other words, it, the rightness of God's wrath starts with the reality of God's holiness. It is, and this is again in the words of Jim Packer, God's resolute action in punishing sin. The, the wrath of God is the judicial response of the judge administering justice. It's right. 
Paul writes in Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So what is the standard for right and wrong? Many will debate that these days. But according to God's word, according to God's word, the standard for right and wrong is God's worth. Whatever upholds and magnifies God's worth is right. And whatever does not uphold and magnify God's worth is wrong. And so God's righteousness means that he does all that he does to uphold and magnify his own worth. Paul says in verse 21, Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Verse 22, Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. Verse 25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Verse 28, they did not see fit to acknowledge God. So, what, what should God do? when confronted by someone who does not see fit to acknowledge him as God? What is the right thing for God to do when confronted with someone who scoffs at his infinite wisdom and blows off the glory of his eternal worth and trades away the truth of all that he is for lies? When confronting someone, anyone who exchanges the worship of their immortal maker in order to serve finite things and bow down to passing images of people. They could be famous people. They could be beautiful people. People with amazing talent and perfect bodies and crazy skills. How how does God uphold his infinite eternal worth when we trade him for that? Loved ones, what is the right response from God when someone, anyone, turns away from him as their all-satisfying treasure in the hope of finding something better somewhere else? The right response is wrath. Because wrath demonstrates God's matchless, infinite, and eternal worth. If God did not punish all that, he would be diminishing the worth of his own glory. He would cease to be righteous. That's Paul's answer. 
How would you answer that? Perhaps you'd say, yeah, I, I, I see that in principle, that God's wrath is right. But how is God righteous and just in pouring out his wrath on people who have never seen or heard of his infinite worth? And Paul says in verse 19, what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So, they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. So, you just look around. <laughs> Look at the wonder of all that is. Look at the wonder of how it all fits, how it all works. It's brilliant. It's genius. It just shouts, God did this. Everyone knows it. And one of the most astonishing things he says is, essentially, everyone knows God. He has revealed clearly the wonder of his power and beauty, his generosity and goodness, his infinite worth. And if we fall short of esteeming him, neither feeling nor expressing appropriate gratitude to him, Paul says, no excuse. Everyone deserves God's wrath. God's wrath is something human beings Choose for themselves. J.I. Packer writes, Before God's wrath is an experience inflicted by God, it is a state for which man himself opts. By retreating from the light which God shines in his heart to lead him to himself. J Jesus puts the rightness of God's wrath in, I don't know, maybe simpler terms, John Chapter 3, verse 19, he says, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than light because their works were evil. So God's wrath is real, and God's wrath is right. A third, God's wrath is revealed. Put on display. His wrath is revealed in the past. His wrath is revealed in the present. His wrath is revealed in the future. Start with the future. There is a revelation of God's wrath that we have not yet seen. Paul refers to it in Romans chapter 2 verse 5. Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works and to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give 
eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be, on that day, wrath and fury. According to God's holy and authoritative word, there is a day yet to come when God will render to every human being according to righteous judgment. And on that day, which is yet to come, the right wrath of God will be made very, very, very real. On that day, according to Revelation chapter 14, if anyone worships the beast in its image, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and suffer in the presence of the holy angels, in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night. So there is a day coming when God's wrath will be fully undiluted on display. But loved ones, the wrath of God is also a present revelation. Romans 1.18 says... The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So this word translated is revealed, it's a present tense verb. The wrath of God, in other words, is constantly, continuously, universally from heaven against all is it's being displayed. How so? In what sense is God's wrath being put on display right now, today? According to verse 21, <clears throat> although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but... They, as a result, became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So, in other words, the, the inability today to think straight about life and about God, that inability is a direct result of willful, inexcusable dishonor, and ingratitude towards God. We're just all tangled up. Verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. How so? What does that look like? 
Well, their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Verse 28. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God, as a result, gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. So, be, because of this arrogance, this pride, this ingratitude, God gave them up. And God's giving them up is present, ongoing revelation of His wrath. Loved ones, God's word is not vague or difficult to understand here. Listen to what he says. Homophobia. You know, that, that, that fear or hatred of people who identify as LGBT or Q. Or, it is a sin rooted in pride. So is heterosexual Sin, it is rooted in pride. So is homosexual sin, it is rooted in pride. So is transgenderism, it is rooted in pride. So is envy, so is covetousness, so is domestic strife, deceit, slander, disobedience to parents. It's all rooted in pride. Listen carefully. If you harden your hearts toward God, if you harden your heart toward His wisdom and to His word and to His design for a holy life, not only are you storing up wrath for yourself on that coming day, that day that is yet to arrive, but you have put yourself under the judgment of God's wrath today. All that sin, all that brokenness in your personal world is a revelation of God's righteous and holy wrath. We live in a world where the wrath of God is on display everywhere. And verse 32 says, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, the wages of sin is death, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So, you know, when, when things get to, the, to where... There are pride parades to celebrate and affirm and congratulate people for ungodliness and unrighteousness. You know, when, when things get to where someone could be punished for saying what I just said, then one may also correctly conclude that the wrath of God is being revealed right now. So, God's wrath will be revealed 
and God's wrath is currently being revealed. But loved ones, listen, this is, this is, this is where our hope lies. God's wrath has also already been revealed. And it happened one day, almost 2,000 years ago, on a hillside just outside Jerusalem, where Jesus, the Son of God, was nailed to a cross and suspended between heaven and earth. And there he suffered and bled and died to assuage God's righteous anger. That death was an outpouring, a display of the wrath of God. According to 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, He, that is Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins. It was, it was on the cross that Jesus drank the bitter cup of God's wrath. It was on the cross that God's wrath was revealed and satisfied once for all for everyone who believes. That's what propitiation means. It was on that cross that Jesus bore the wrath of God we deserved so that we might not face it again on that last day. So how does one respond rightly to that? What is the right and fitting response to that revelation of God's wrath? Oh, I just think of reverence and trembling. <laughs> I think of James 4.10. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. Think of Acts 2.38. Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Save yourselves from this crooked generation. I think of 1 John 1.9. That if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And therein, God's mercy triumphs over judgment and wrath. And so it is appropriate to go back to where this text began and to honor the Lord and to give thanks to the Lord for his inexpressible gift. And that's what we're going to do together right now. But first, let's pray. We're thankful, O oh Lord, that in the cross, not only is your wrath revealed, but for those who entrust themselves to the Son of God, wrath is removed once for all. And we thank you, Lord. We thank you for what you've done. We thank you for what you've given to us. We thank you, Lord, that mercy triumphs over wrath and judgment. And we rejoice with trembling at what you have done in the death of your son. We rejoice and we, 
we call upon you. We turn to you. We look to you, Lord Jesus. You are our righteousness and our hope. You are the one who has propitiated, satisfied, assuaged the anger of God against our sin. You are the one that has accomplished it all. We look to you. We thank you. We call on you. We trust you. We confess our sins to you. And we find life in you by faith in you. Be glorified now as we just honor what you have done yet again with thankful hearts. In your name we pray. Amen.